I tell my mother I will be sleeping under the stars. I feel like I should be scared of these things, but because they're so new, I'm just kind of not. When I go back. I just feel like trees are very disorienting. I don't know if I go into them, how I will get out. I hear this whole thing of ice about to crack. I would never move back to the place I grew up. As a clue, it wasn't working. Blue tits, great tits. Caricatures of small dogs. And the smell of the desert in the spring is one of the most incredible smells. The aspens stand as witness to this queer gathering. This is Queer Out Here, an audio zine that explores the outdoors from queer perspectives. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alice. Welcome to Issue 3. This is a varied issue, with some pieces focused very much on queer identity and some pieces much more about nature. You'll hear poetry, conversations, music, prose, diaries and field recordings from around Europe, Australia, Canada and the USA. A bit of housekeeping, as usual, before we jump in. The pieces in Queer Art here talk about many things related to being queer and the outdoors. If you have specific concerns about content, you can check the full transcript available at QueerOutHere.com or ask a trusted friend to listen and give you feedback. This issue includes swearing, homophobia and transphobia, including homophobic slurs, misogyny and sexism, including reference to harassment, dead animals, physically risky outdoors activities, drinking and physical violence, and non-explicit sensual encounters. More details are available in the show notes on the website. Also on our website, you can find amazing cover art for this issue by Dev Moore, along with creator statements, short biographies and contact details for our contributors. Nice time to take your ears adventuring. Let's Let's get get queer queer out here. I'm Anna. I'm Dan. I'm Jonathan. I'm Jessica. We are on Horsenden Hill near Perivale in London. We are queer out here. <laughs> Our first piece is Adventure, a poem by Narinda Hang. We've chosen this piece to start because Narinda explores different meanings of what we call adventure, or choosing to go back to basics. For someone who has spent much of their life finding a way out of a situation where rough and ready isn't a choice, it's not called adventure, it's just called living. Here's Narinda introducing her piece, which was recorded on ancestral Chochenyo Aloni lands. Hello, my name is Narinda Heng. Since 2012, I've put together annual collections of poetry and writing as a way to process the year and to share that with people. Today I'm sharing a poem from my 2015 collection called From Somewhere Along the Way. That year I was just beginning to embark on work as an outdoor educator and reflecting on what that meant to me as a child of Khmer refugees. I'm constantly ruminating on what it means to work in the outdoors and participate in it in these particular ways and the contradictions that exist there. If you relate to these thoughts, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at longcoolhallway.com. This poem is called Adventure. I tell my mother I will be sleeping under the stars and carrying everything I need on my back as I travel through forested mountains. She blinks at me. Having slept beneath a thin thatched roof, both stars and rain passed through. Having walked for miles with rations slimmer than anything I could imagine. Having built cook fires morning, noon, and night for years of her life. 
having worked decades for a plot of land on which stands an insulated house with a sturdy roof and a shiny kitchen. She wonders how she can have a daughter who has all these things at her fingertips and instead of holding on, looks for ways to recreate a dilute, make-believe version of those old hardships. She is breathlessly incredulous at how people in this wealthy country invent ways to subject themselves to suffering. And I don't quite know how to explain it either, except that it feels good to learn these things about survival, however contrived the experience, to step away from the inescapable artificialities of modern reality to embrace for a time cycles of waking and sleep more attuned to the sun and moon than to money. And when I return to the world of electricity on demand and water through faucets and the ability to talk to everyone and no one all at once, I have a better understanding of the benefits and the costs. I tell her that I never forget that I could not do these things if not for all she's done to give me the ability and the permission. Thank you for listening. Again, this was Adventure from my 2015 collection from somewhere along the way. This is Narinda. All the best. Thanks, Narinda. Our next piece is the first of four installments of Julia Freeman's The Road to Hell. Julia recorded these audio diaries for us as she went on a very long bike ride through Northern Europe. We've placed her diary entries throughout the issue, and they'll also help mark the breaks between each section, places where you might want to pause for your own little intermission. Hell. As long as humans have had words, there seems to have been this concept of a heaven and a hell. And as long as there's been the concept of a hell, people have been telling others to go there or threatening that people are going to end up there if they don't do certain things. Go to hell, people yell. Many of us in the LGBTQA community will have at some point been told by somebody if you don't go straight, you're going to burn in hell. I had that with one guy. If you don't go straight, you're going to go to hell. What's in hell? People like you. What's in heaven? People like me. I think you need to work on your sales pitch. But whilst hell, H-E-L-L, in the English language, generally conjures the image of sulfur and brimstone and banished souls and things, or possibly slough. There is, on the earth, places called hell. There's one in Michigan in North America. There's a village just outside Trondheim in Norway that's called hell. And I believe there's one in Poland, which is on Route 666 of the local bus network. And so, when I discovered that there's a hell in Norway, one, one night when the insomnia was bad, I noticed that from my home it was only 2,000 kilometres away. And then when I had a good night's sleep and realised that was a silly idea, I realised it was only 1,500 kilometres from Hamburg. So I got a train to Hamburg with my bike, and on Friday, which is four days ago, 
I started riding north through Germany, then Denmark, and I'm now somewhere in Sweden because the same way many and many minority groups have reclaimed things that were otherwise insults, I want to reclaim going to hell. I'm Julia, I'm a dyke, on a bike, and I'm going to hell. The first month section of this issue is based around the theme of growing up. The three pieces you're about to hear all speak to the experiences of being a queer child or teenager, and how the homophobia and transphobia surrounding us during those formative years can have an ongoing effect on how we relate to ourselves, to other people and to our surroundings. I'll introduce the pieces now, then you'll hear them one after another. First is Kai Jensen's The Nature of Queerness, a conversation between Kai and Susanna, who grew up in very different places. Kai, 20 miles from the nearest town, and Susanna in New York City. Their conversation was recorded on the land that is currently called Sobe Island, which, along with the broader Portland area, was illegally taken from the Multnomah tribe of the Chinook Indians. Next is Home, a song by Jonathan about the beauty and bigotry he experienced growing up in the bush in Australia. This song was recorded on stolen Wurundjeri country in so-called Melbourne, Australia. He pays respect to Wurundjeri and Kulin elders past and present, and we acknowledge the sovereignty of all Indigenous and First Nations people listening. Finally, in our prose and poetry piece Half Moon Lake, Penelope Foreman shows how her experiences of coming of age distanced her from the landscapes and hidden places of her childhood. My friend Susanna and I are going for a walk on the Wapato Greenway Loop on Savi Island outside of Portland, Oregon. We grew up in quite different places. My name is Kai Jensen, and I grew up on a beef cattle farm in rural Illinois. And Susanna grew up in New York City. Uh, they were born and raised there. And we wanted to invite you along for our conversation. I like, like I said, like I don't like the trees because they're all in gangs here. Like, if we were to go walk out there, like, we'd be completely surrounded by this gang of trees that knows each other. They have game plans. And I like it when the trees are in the sidewalk. And they have a little square. And sometimes they spread their roots and they're like, I mean, they, they try to show their muscle, but... I just don't understand trees as a menacing force. Like, that's, like, I had a tree. Like, it was like my, it was almost, like, I thought of it almost like a pet when I was a kid. That I, like, spent hours and hours and hours in, like, was it nearly daily. No, it was in a, like, patch of trees, kind of like this. And I would put my cat ghost up there. And then I would climb up there and I hooked up like a pulley system with a bucket so I could haul up a book to read and my journal and snacks. And I just hung out in this, there's like this perfect branch that had this like Y shape that I could just kind of like sit in. And I hang out there, hang out up there for hours all the time. I just feel like trees are very disorienting as part of it. Disorienting how? And that they have no, no um, Reason them, reason to them. I don't know if I go into them how I will get out. 
The uh, same way you got in. But how will I know what that is? Because uh, you know where... Like, do you not have a kind of internal compass or, like, a sense of direction? I do. So, like... But all the trees look the same. And, like, I mean, my internal compass works extremely well in, in cities in general. You know how, like, it gets all, like, close in as you're going out to the coast and, like, it starts to feel, like, dark because the trees are really big and there's all this, like, moss hanging off of everything and... It's creepy AF. And I don't like it. <laughs> and it starts to make me feel very uncomfortable. I have a very positive association with the natural world. And it feels very closely related to my queerness in some ways. I think it's interesting that you have a very different relationship slash experience. <laughs> well, what is interesting to me is that it seems like what you're saying is that like being in touch with nature helped you to find sort of your true nature. Yeah. Well, that's sort of happening for me now is like I feel more called to be doing nature's things even though they make me wildly uncomfortable. But it's like, and I don't really get it. The whole like, like what do you do? Like what are we doing here? Like, like this is fine because I'm talking to you and like I can just look at things but it's not like I have to be here and completely or like you know I don't know what to, I don't know what it is to do yeah I grew up in the city my hanging out in nature and observing wildlife was sitting on my stoop and watching people walk by and all the different behaviors and languages and cat calls and uh yeah I mean it was wild but it wasn't you know I mean we didn't like, you, even the park doesn't feel like nature. I mean, I I went to sleep with lion roars because the park, the zoo was across the street from my house. Um, so, I don't... But they were in a cage. Um, sometimes the trees would be heavy with crows. But like, yeah, animals and nature in the city is not easy to seek. I feel like there's, at least in the communities that I'm involved with and have been around, there is very strongly a sense that nature is good and getting outside is good for you and it's a kind of self-care and it's important to do to take care of yourself. Go be outside. Again, it doesn't have to be the woods, right? Like, you can go and be outside in a park or something. I'm just thinking about, like, the cultural messages that city bad, nature good. Those kinds of messages make me feel like, well, obviously the way that I feel about nature is the is quote unquote right. Mm. But so I'm thinking about it from if you were to be like, why would you spend time in nature? Obviously, the thing that's good for you and nourishing and like regenerative is to be in surrounded by people and concrete all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awful to me. Mm. I don't want anything to do with that. I think I would just tell you that you're wrong and then like I, w I don't know that I would even really get a, a shot I don't know does that make any sense mm -hmm. how long have we been walking like an hour and change right yeah so do you feel any different yeah how do you feel 
uh, I feel deeply relaxed. The sense of anxiety of I'm meant to be doing something, I'm not doing something that I should be doing, I'm doing something wrong kind of stories that happen for me in the city don't happen. I don't have that like tension in my body, like in my shoulders in the way that I think that I almost always do walking around in the city. I feel much more like clear headed, I guess. What about you? Do you feel any different? I'm trying to evaluate that. I feel, um, I think that I feel different in my body a little bit, probably just from walking also. And, um, I feel like I want to cry, be honest. <laughs> You're allowed to cry. I don't think I'm gonna cry. I just feel like I wanna cry. Can I just say something though? Yeah. About growing up in New York and Brooklyn. And like, I know it sounds like, oh, it sounds like sad or something. Like, cause I didn't get to like go to the park or swim or something. But like, also, it was amazing. Like, I get people from all over the world. I get to eat food from all over the world. Like, nobody's family was like anybody else's family. It was so diverse. It was like everybody had a different religion. Everybody had a different language. Everybody, you know, was constantly mixed. And I got, you know, crazy, great, amazing opportunities to do things at world-class level constantly. And that's all stuff that only, like, I think being in a city and being maybe only that city, I don't even know, but... And being like, and people can provide. So I just want to like give big ups a little bit to growing up citywide. Yeah, I mean, equally, there are definite downsides to, to growing up in the middle of nowhere, right? Like, there were no queer people, there were no people of color. The lack of diversity made me really stand out like a sore thumb. Like, I was the weird kid that nobody really knew how to handle or what to do with because didn't fit in. I would never move back to the place I grew up. It doesn't feel safe for me to exist there as like a visibly trans queer person. I loved running around and playing outside. Maybe that's part of what feels different for me is there's no judgment in nature. But for me, people were a source of, I was never doing the right things and I was always disappointing them or just baffling them. And multiplying the number of people like, around to judge me <laughs> in the given <laughs> square mile radius <laughs> seems like the worst possible thing. It wasn't all bad or all good. Well, none of us have it that way, do we? No. Car ho. We survived. We did. Good job.
Sunday the shops are closed, the pubs are both open, there's three or four motels, and the signs out the front are still broken. The kids are suspicious, and the talk is still Someone burnt down the old factory, the walls are still on the leaf. And the girls hate the same as they did 15 years ago. The sons and the daughters of teenagers I used to know.
community archaeologist. I bring people and places together and spend a lot of my time out in landscapes, drinking them in, finding how they feel. I grew up with a fairly wild childhood, out all day, home muddy and hungry at night. As I grew older, this uncomplicated and playful relationship with the natural world changed and shifted, and this piece explores a few of the reasons why. It is 1993, and I am nine years old. Summers feel long and horizons are a promise, not a border. My hair is unruly and my shoes sensible. My BMX is blue and my gender is generally indeterminable. I am not aware that I am seen as unusual or strange yet. At nine, I am on the cusp of the bitter awareness of gossip and the social capital gained by remoulding yourself to fit in. I assume you can love anybody. Somehow, despite the total lack of any queer role models in my world, and the constant undercurrent of casual homophobia at home, school and at play, I just assume everyone loves men and women. I'm an innocent soul. I grew up in West Yorkshire, equally at home in the damp green of pondweed, or breathing the throat-stripping umber dust of old brickworks. I'm an explorer, and in the school holidays I range in the woods, and the derelict manor houses, and the weed-choked old railway lines, naming the trees and collecting the eggs of amphibians. My tribe, a boyish from the estate near my grandparents' house. My primary school cohort, who blank me in the classroom, but race me and run with me and fall out of trees with me in the summer. We are a pack. We can slide from scrumping to pylon climbing, from knowing the best spots for grass snake nests to the best haunted old industry derelicts in town. Wilderness is everywhere to us. Field and fence, concrete and cornfield. And we are wild. It is 1995 and everything is changing. I am almost 12 and my days are full of tension. There is suddenly an undercurrent that begins to tow me under the day people noticed I had a body. That I was, as they called it, in bloom, blossoming as if bearing fruit was all this female body could do. Friendships whittled away to weariness. Assumptions of hormonal inevitability stripped me of my relationship to my tribe, reduced to suspicion and whispers. As I became visibly woman, I became invisibly lost. I became conscious of how to take up space, how I moved through paths I used to beat with bare feet and meander through with my eyes closed. A young woman alone in the wild is a crime statistic waiting to happen. Unchaperoned, I am at risk. But company has connotations always. Despite my childhood age, I sit on that uncomfortable fence of womanhood, suddenly fair game to comment after look, after light fingers, stealing the right to my own body away from me. I felt violated not only because my body had taken the place of my personality as what defined me, but because this body was assumed to belong to the gaze, affections and attentions of men. What had been a joyful naivety of assumed pansexuality not that I could have ever defined it that way then, 
had cooled like a lead ball in my chest and I lugged it around inside me, a constant dull weight of shame. It dragged me down when the word lesbo was spat out as a playground insult. It sank my hopes all the times my mother's queer co-workers were derided over the dinner table and reminded me of my place when inventive but painful and vile slang to label gay people was thrown around as cruel humour all around me. Each time I was left out of those quarry swimming trips, every not-quite-joking suggestion of sexual favours in that lone deep dark of our old summer holiday den hollows in the woods, I screamed inside and out to be seen as an adventurer again, as a lesbian, as a person. Soon I felt alien in landscapes I had once felt entangled in the very material fabric of, where before there was no definition or boundary between me and the mud and the brick dust and the ash pits and the bulrush fluff. Suddenly the illusion of this harmony was shattered. As a woman, I wasn't safe. As a queer woman, I wasn't welcome. Exploration becomes tinged with suggestiveness, anticipation of connections that can never be made. How could I love being in nature when I felt so unnatural? To explore this, I'd like to share my poem, Half Moon Lake. You were a river once, broken from the old course, bricked off by a railway, steel and lines, delays and diesel, domesticated. From three, I had a toe in you, balanced growing limbs between water and bank, casting a line for fish as I wrapped my newfound mouth around the naming of, learning the spells to sing the bream perched tent from the depths. My father, fisherman, encouraged a good sky of day or two, learning to cast maggots, or spin a lure, more vital than a lost morning or two of multiplication, rock cakes and unbrushed hair marked the occasion. By eight I was pushing the limits of you, looping blue nylon rope amid your tree line, swimming despite legends of terrapins, abandoned, grown giant, angry for the taste of flesh. Soon I am renowned for knowing the half-imagined paths into the treasures of you, past rusting Car Hill, a reliquary, a post-joyride burnout, orange-brown heart of my mind path down the hill to the forbidden larder, smuggling warm pheasant's eggs into my pockets that, much later, would burst with chestnuts I would never roast. By eleven I was forgetting which rock face had the most handholds, crevices, secret holes, for leaving messages and grubby paper bags of tenpence mix. The rope swing stilled. The first flowers of spring ignored, mornings too cold, waterside too muddy, the bracken too tangled to let me through. I learned to hate the smell of you, brackish, where once there was flow. You were the same lake, but I was too changed to know. It sounds final, but it wasn't the end. It never could be. My heart beats to the drum of storm waves on sea defences. My hair is lengths of marron grass, and my skin tastes of the colder the air, the ooze. I found my way back into the world, nature, and into myself, but that's another story. This section has been permeated with a sense of sadness. The three pieces we've just heard present the feeling of being alienated from a much-loved place due to homophobia, transphobia and misogyny. But there are elements of hope, too, of survival, of deep connections and reconnections with the outdoors, with nature, with other people and with ourselves. If you're inspired by any of the pieces in this issue to create your own audio, we'd really love to hear from you. 
We'll probably be open for contributions again in July, so keep an eye on our website or social media or sign up to our newsletter to get notifications straight to your inbox. So I'm about 900 kilometres in to my uh, road trip to hell, well, cycle trip to hell. It's uh, been a tough few days. Uh, two days ago I got utterly soaked in a rainstorm that lasted, well, basically the whole day. Um, and then slept in a bivy bag under a tree, um, got up the next day and the rain started all over again. But the terrain has been absolutely fantastic, utterly beautiful. And then last night I stayed at a hotel outside the Swedish town of Amal. Fans of lesbian movies should recognise the name Amal. Usually they'll recognise it with fucking in front of it. A couple of decades ago there was a film released called Fucking Amal. It was released in the international market under the name Show Me Love. So some people may know it by that name. But when I saw how close my original route plan was to Amal, I, I had to have a little bit of a pilgrimage. Yeah, it's a small town. It took me maybe 10 minutes to cycle through it this morning. Uh, I tweeted about it and got an awful lot of people replying with, Ah, fucking Amal. Um, but yeah, it's, this trip is a bit harder than I expected. Uh, I'm having a lot of saddle pain, but the scenery is spectacular. I've been spending basically from dawn till dusk in the saddle every day. It's been a lot of hills, almost a thousand meters of climbing each day. Yeah, it's a hard trip. But I'm getting there. I'm about 80 kilometres from the Norwegian border. I've got a hotel booked just across the border for tonight. So, uh, yeah. I'll talk to you again when I'm closer to hell. Well, that sound of rushing water you hear is not any old waterfall. It's the sound of water rushing through a beaver dam at Hamfen in Kent, which is Britain's first beaver reintroduction program. And I'm all alone here. The beavers are probably tucked up in their lodge, being mostly nocturnal. My name's Gavin, and you're listening to Queer Out Here.
We're now into the second section of this issue, more focused on creatures and environments, seen and unseen, real and mythical, and our relationships to and with them. We start with Mags, and if you've listened to our previous issues, you'll recognize her as our most regular contributor. This time, she takes us into her front yard as she does the RSPB Big Garden Birdwatch, an annual citizen science project in the UK. The start and end of Max piece were recorded on a winter day in January, but the middle section was recorded in the same location in a full bloom of summer. It's almost like a daydream in birdsong. So it's Sunday 27th of January and I have just settled down at my window with a hot cup of coffee. It's quite breezy outside, a little bit chilly, um, but I'm settling down for an hour to take part in the RSPB Birdwatch. Um, so it was a little quiet yesterday when I was uh, seeing what was around outside, but uh, hopefully we'll have a few birds flying in to the feeders today. I've already spotted several blue tits and a great tit, so let's see what else appears. So I've just made it through to the end of the one hour bird watch and a little quieter today, maybe due to the weather, but uh, a couple of battling robins spotted along with uh, several blue tits, great tits, uh, chaffinch and my very greedy grey squirrel who has made all attempts to consume the seed that is on the ground and swing from uh, the other feeders. Um, also spotted a magpie and a pigeon. But, uh, still cold and breezy out and been a lovely hour or so. Um, so from East Sussex. This is Queer Out Here doing the RSPB Birdwatch. Thanks, Mags. In our next piece, Finnish Winter Adventure, Emily and Jenny describe some of the joys and discomforts of travelling and trying unfamiliar activities in an environment that is very different to home. The piece moves between recordings taken during an adventure holiday in Suomi, Finland, where they encountered reindeer, huskies, trout and arctic hares, and a conversation about their trip recorded afterwards. The recordings in Finland were made on Sami homeland, which has been occupied by the Sami people for thousands of years. Emily and Jenny also reflect on how the operators of their tour engaged, or didn't, with this history. 
Do you remember the time when we walked on snow? Do you remember the time when we fell on our butts? <laughs> I am Emily. I am Jenny. And we are from Melbourne, Australia. We're in Ulanka. 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 In Finland. Swami. Um, we're walking in a very winter wonderland scene. It's about, must be nearly two o'clock, so the sun has already started to set. To our left is a large lake, which is all frozen. We were there for about a week and we did a, doing a sports holiday. <laughs> well, I didn't realize it was a sports holiday until I had to buy travel insurance. It was like the sports bonus pack. Um, I was like, what? Who am I? If there's a crash, it's because I've fallen on my face. Uh-oh. There's a rope bridge. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I got thrown off my dog sled three times so I can walk across the goddamn rope bridge. You definitely can. You are invisible. And the huskies, who are very talkative. <laughs> they had already like harnessed up like all the huskies that we were gonna go riding with and like as we got closer and closer it was just like this cacophony like every single husky which is like 20 probably more than 20, there was like four in each sled and they mm. were what eight ten sleds mm. so that is 20 <laughs> 40. 40. 40. Uh, yes, I'm going on a math store next. <laughs> and it was so hard. It was more physical than I expected. The first people to go around like got rid of the snow, so we were just going over rocks and stuff at high speed, and you have to like hold on and balance. <laughs> yeah, after the first time around, I'm like, oh, God, maybe I should just stop. This is so hard. I'm like, no, you can just keep going. And I did keep going. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but I did it. <laughs> oh. I did it. I tried it, at least. Ah, the bridge is moving. Ah. Okay, I'm turning around. Just waving at the skiers. We were running dangerously close to the edge of the ice. Whoa. Jenny. What are they doing? Ah! Maybe we'll just happen to record on audio the last moments of these people before they fall through the ice. Ah! They're way too close to the edge of the ice. I'm scared for them. I know. You know, like if you are Australian and you go walking anywhere and it's hot and you run out of water, like you have that deep dread of like, you know, this is really bad, I'm going to die kind of thing. But even though I think we did, we kind of did some scary things in the snow or there was moments where probably if I had that culturally ingrained, oh, I'm out in the cold and if I can't get back, I might die because I didn't have that. I didn't, I feel like I should be scared of these things, but because they're so new, I'm just kind of not. Have you got your mittens on? No, I took it off. Just <laughs> <laughs> you took it off like 30, 10 seconds ago and then I made you hold my phone. I'm just trying to learn how to use this new camera. This is Jenny checking her Instagram on a bridge across a black river in wild Finland. 
So apparently they're oh, apparently they're a trout in there. Yeah, Arctic trout. I hope they've got their winter clothes on. I have to kind of identify if my immediate response is no. Is that because I'm scared and I should just like push past it and it will be fine and I'll enjoy it? Or is that a no? I don't want to do yeah, it. I don't sure need to not. respect that kind of thing. <laughs> Are you holding on to me because you're scared? Uh, okay, let's go the rest of the way. Just don't look down. And don't drop anything. Oh, wow. It looks so pretty over there. <gasps> that was a good bridge. Imagine going over that in a dog sled. I think like the most joyful I was was when we were at the reindeer farm mm. and we were on the reindeer sled. <laughs> that was um, so silly. It was so silly, especially <laughs> after the dog sled, which you'd expected to be kind of like pleasant and fun. And then it was just like this intense, terrifying experience. Um, the, the reindeer sled were was very so placid. Yeah, there was like one reindeer pulling the two of us in a sled and it was just so disinterested in doing it. So we'd kind of like trot a bit and then stop and eat some snow and then try and pull us off the path to eat some moss. And <laughs> that was just so cute. And that you just had this cute, adorable reindeer butt in, in front of you. And it was just like such a delightful thing. Hey, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. It's kind of like the reindeer farm was both my delightful bit, but also mm -hmm. some of my complicated feeling bits because mm. it was... Um, the original people who lived in that land, the Sami people, you know, the farm wasn't run by Sami people and Finland's one of the only countries in that is part of Lapland that doesn't legislate that only Sami people can, can be reindeer herders. So I was very much aware of like the history of, you know, the people whose original kind of, I guess, rights and ownership of the land and, and the forest and the reindeers had been exploited or taken away by these people who had been farming reindeers for six generations then when you count it back it's like about 1600 when the Finns first mm. settled and, and kind of pushed the Sami out the herder you know she said traditionally the Sami people like when they first came here they would live with the reindeers and, and stuff like that she sort of briefly said you know and then the Finnish came in and and kind of took it over and she said it's a bit like you know the Americans and the Native Americans only less bloody I was like, hmm, okay, <laughs> maybe, but, you know, it's not exactly like an amicable, nice yeah. thing or anything like that. I found that really weird in concept of most of the people there were Brits and when she's saying that, you know, us immediately and presumably the South Africans there as well, immediately recognising what that meant yeah. um, in a cultural kind of, but the Brits probably just not... You know, yeah. well, they probably do think about it, oh, just like, you know, like the Americans or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a hare. Looks like yeah. the footprints of looking at before. Yeah, like it's hopping. I think it's too... Yeah, that's its back. Boing, too boing. Ba -dump, ba -dump. Apparently they go all white in the winter. Nature. Such nature. Yeah, like it was definitely, there was definitely a vibe of, yeah, this is a wilderness thing. People have signed up for wildernesses. They yeah. don't want other stuff. I don't want to go visit museums or anything. But it's um, not just museums. Whereas it, felt, it, it did feel, <laughs> I know, I know, but you could you could imagine that if, if there had been a lot of 
let's talk about culture and history and, and st- there would have been people there who would have been like, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. Um, but I felt like that was missing a huge, like, I'm sure there would have been more people who would be interested in that and they kind of missed an opportunity to market mm. that. Yeah. Whoa, it's a little bit deeper. Wee! I don't think anyone's walked on this all winter. No, that's... Is that a dog or is it a hair running faster? Oh, it's like drops of something. Oh my god, look at the sky. So weird. Okay, this one looks like it's, you know... I'm trying to take a picture of this. Zoom out. No, zoom out. We were in the middle of this national park um, and there were um, a whole lot of trails around and so one afternoon we had a free afternoon and we went for a walk. Yeah, I think if we follow the path. So I kind of want to go directly forward. Oh, deep snow here. Ah! <laughs> directly forward. Look at all, look, it's an Arctic hair superhighway. Yeah. Um, I think if we go directly forward and then in, then we're not in danger of... Yes getting onto the icy bit like those falls ahead of us looks like there's a like a, a hair and ski collision there yeah the shortcut back was across the lake across the frozen lake and this i think well, we recorded a bit of it but the it wasn't until we got right to the end that we realized we'd kind of timed it perfectly that there was this fog came as we were coming out and then like i feel like as i look up the sky is bluer but then it's yeah. almost like the corner of my eyes and the further yeah. I look at the wall, the longer the light goes. It's definitely bluer above it. Well, they were saying that there might be some wind blowing it away so we can see some northern lights. I hope so. We could always sort of see just where we were going, but it was that kind of eerie, not quite, like if the fog got any thicker, we'd be just in the middle of this whiteness forever. Yeah. I think that was one of the things that, that, that made me think maybe I should be scared of this, but I'm not. Because <laughs> it was so weird, wasn't it? It was just. It was surreal, yeah. It was so surreal. Just your eyes kept trying to focus every time you were looking up because everything was white. And you kept thinking classes were fogged up or something. And then you looked down at your feet and you could see your feet clearly and you could see the snow around your feet. And, oh no, I can see. But yeah, then by the time cool. we got to the other side, the fog suddenly lifted and. You could see bits of sky. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so weird. Swam me. I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna take a picture of this. These are uh, these hair footprints going into the nothingness. I quite like following Emily and Jenny's piece with his next poem, Satires, from Pablo Miguel Martinez. The imagery flows through, lending a wintry, fairy-tale chill to Pablo Miguel's words. Satyrs, we're huddled against the winter night's chill, fog of breath almost melding, warmth of thick, spiring thighs almost touching. The star's swirl is spinning music. The aspens stand as witness to this queer gathering. The pond mirrors what's in our large, ancient hearts. I appreciate the way that this poem opens up a space within both landscape and myth for queer encounters. 
Queerness also forms a background for the encounter described in our next piece, Jade Wallace's poem, You Gather Their Bones. The piece is set in downtown Toronto, where a large population of feral cats is looked after by local volunteers. Jade tells us that, a few years ago, they were in their first visibly queer relationship with someone who fed the cats, and who also collected the bones of dead animals. Jade says, I thought that both the feeding of the cats and the collecting of the bones were not only good, but also mystical and inspiring undertakings by my lover. You gather their bones. Even the feral cats don't touch this starling. Her black feathers are slick on her body, puffed up with the water of a spring thaw. Her beak glows bone white, a breathless ocarina outlasting its air. She sleeps on a beach of bloated carpet, black plastic, mud as thick as caramel. Behind her, the building walls are flat and pale as dunes and peopled with graffiti. Caricatures of small dogs, chickens in dinner jackets, disembodied voices with edges dark as ink preside over the starling's body. Nearby, paper cups half full with rainwater and bowls holding aging cat food sit untouched as the spread at a wake. You and I stood a while with the other accidental mourners. For a moment before we left, you considered taking the starling home to a warm room lit by soft sun slipping through the leaves of old trees and laying her down there among the fur and the bones of the other unclaimed creatures that came to you after their deaths. Hi, I'm Dan. I'm on a 12 and a half mile bike ride around Buell Water in Kent and you are listening to Queer Out Here. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, that's what the saying says anyway. The reality is that for the first 600 kilometres or so, the road to hell seemed to be paved with tiny flecks of flint, each one individually napped by pixies to maximise tyre penetration. I've had nine flat tyres so far. Nine. I've not had that many in the last five to ten years. But you adapt, you overcome. I've, I've got new outer tyre on, new inners. Things seem to be going okay. Touch wood. But I'm somewhere around the 1100 kilometre mark now. Um, I've got just under 400 or so to go. And yeah, good intentions. I thought I was going to do 150 kilometres a day for 10 days, but the hills are killing me. And without going into too much detail, so is the saddle. And yeah, for a long time I'd seriously considered skipping ahead by train by 200 kilometres. But I decided yesterday I would try very hard to push through and beyond that, and just keep going. Each turn of the pedals gets me one step closer to hell. I decided that if I'm not getting the chain, train, I'm going to at least reroute slightly. My original route, my original good intention, involved going over two mountains, 
to get across two valleys and then head north. But my revised plan, which takes out a couple of thousand metres of ascent, is to continue following this valley that I've been following for the last couple hundred kilometres now. And I'm going to just keep following it up the valley alongside the railway line and the, the river, which gives you an idea how what the gradient's like. It adds a little bit of distance, but it takes off a lot of the climbing. I need to achieve 130 kilometres per day for three more days, including today, to get there. I'm 60 kilometres in for today. I'm almost there. I'm almost made it to hell. So, do you think she's going to get there? Mm, don't know. Uh, thanks, Julia, for taking us into the final section of issue three, which is loosely based around the theme of being on the road. The pieces in this section all engage with roads and travel in some way, whether it's cycling and getting punctures, or slipping on ice beside busy urban streets, crunching along quiet dirt roads, or stopping on a bike ride to listen to the countryside sounds. First up, we have Walking the Spaces Between from Jonathan Stalls, who invites us to move in a more human dimension, beyond walls, screens and motor vehicles. Jonathan walks mostly on Arapahoe and Cheyenne lands in the Colorado Front Range, and this piece was recorded in the streets of Denver. Jonathan's invitation is taken up immediately by Johnny Gale in his freeform poem Nature Walk, recorded in Kansas in early spring. Greetings, Jonathan Stalls here from Denver, Colorado. You will hear uh, the sound of my feet crunching and sliding and slipping on snow and ice. You're also gonna hear cars and buses and trucks and all kinds of things uh, flying by me. So I'll do my best to speak directly into your ears as we move together. I want, am wanting to just invite you into um, a post-winter storm walk. I often am, I spend most of my time by foot. I, I care so much about human movement, moving the way we're made to. Um, being in our bodies, being in relationship to the outside world, to one another, to our own inner journey at an unhurried pedestrian pace. I think it's something that has been so lost in such a short amount of time in relationship to the automobile and building everything, everything around us, especially in the United States of America, but all over the world defaulting to you can hear this whole thing of ice about to crack Woo. defaulting everything to car centric uh, design of environments car centric patterns and human behavior car centric relationship to time and so I don't I don't necessarily call myself uh, anti-car because I in all honesty love getting out and exploring 
um, all kinds of places that would never, that would never, it just wouldn't be possible without the freedom of the automobile. So I don't have this anti-car. Here we go. You can hear the traffic behind me. But I've just, I, I, it's so loud in me to prioritize calling, calling attention to just how quick we have covered up so much of human being, human connecting in this, in this way. So one of the reasons why I am choosing to do this audio alongside moving cars and traffic and speed specifically on ice and snow and specifically for this invitation um, is the what I find to just be such a beautiful relationship of and and beautiful and complex and often violent relationship of queer identity moving in the outside world moving in public life moving in all kinds of different systems that you know the the sound and the kind of the the heaviness and the exhaust and the speed but even more specifically the bypassing of one's unique experience you know you can get in the car you're getting to your destination it should only take 10 minutes it's always taking 10 minutes uh, is this kind of built-in system of saying I can bypass the experience of another to get to where I need to go, to control my own agenda, to make the most of my time. And I find that, at least for me, woo, I was almost down. Wish I had a little video for you to see all the eyes here. I almost find that in my in my kind of in my queer identity that just moves so beyond binary thinking binary existing you're in or you're out you're this or you're that you're 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 gay you're straight you're this the i mean however you identify whatever labels you want to put on anything all good all good but there's something so loud i'm also an artist which naturally weaves itself into my into my queer movement vibration in this world um, that just cries out for more mystery more time and attention in the spaces between our rules our laws our lines our our artificial interiors be via our cars and our buildings our screens our, lab our, our labeling of things so quickly our that there's way more flow in the natural world and in, and, and in holistic understanding of human movement, human breathing, human adapting, human resilience. And so I find that the relationship of walking is a practical, immediate, sensate invitation, ongoing invitation into queer identity related to connection to people, connection to the outside world, and just this rumbling, complex connection to what comes, comes up on the inside. So I, 
Spent eight and a half months walking across the U.S. in 2010, just, just pounding that into my being. It was such a, so far beyond a PhD in body-based knowledge and understanding. But then I, shortly after, founded an organization, now a worker-owned co-op, that's been co-founded by other people in my life called Walk to Connect, focusing on human connection. Getting out, oh my God, this is tragic, okay. Gotta get around that. Um, Hundreds of walks all the time, thousands of people. And now I'm focusing on a creative project called Intrinsic Paths, which just, I wanna go deeper into what is, what is within each being, each breathing body, each vibrant soul and how it moves through this world. Already within, that you don't have to earn it, you don't have to try and be something that you aren't, that you can just move more openly, more freely, more, more authentically into who you are made to be. And that spans everything. And my queer identity related to walking and being in the outdoors specific to this invitation is loud, present every day, present in every moment of every day. And it gives me courage and strength to continue seeking and moving in the spaces between. Um, So, (laughs) there's an invitation to move in your body, to walk with intention, and to be a unique, vibrant frequency of queer identity wherever you are, however you are in this world because we need it. We need your color, our color, to move and invite and inspire in all the spaces between, all the lines we've drawn. So uh, if you wanna stay connected, Jonathan Stalls on all the social media things, Intrinsic Paths, I'm on Patreon. I'm doing a lot of cool creative work on Patreon. Would be dope to have you as a patron to dig into this kind of work and movement in the world. So peace, peace to your journey. Cheers. Early spring in Kansas, colors, green, purple, and yellow. Walking on a dirt road outside a neighborhood. Former military housing from the 80s. I take my daily walk. Dry grasses, early growing things, trees just starting to bloom. I've had spring already once this year. In Phoenix, it came early. All the colors busting out. Vibrant. And the smell of the desert in the spring is one of the most incredible smells. The creosote and the prickly pear and the okatia. Now... I'm watching Kansas colors change and the early sap running from the thaw of the earth. And I stand in awe of Mother Nature. Thanks, Johnny. 
The next piece, The British Countryside, was recorded by myself, Alice. It was the first beautiful spring Sunday, and everyone seemed to be out in the lanes of Somerset enjoying the sun, including cars and airplanes, which are typical sounds on a weekend out in the country.
Hi, I'm Gemma and I'm at Standin House which is an arts and crafts house with William Morris designs in it. I'm in the gardens and I'm listening to Queer Out Here. Greetings from hell. I actually made it. It hasn't quite sunk in yet. I arrived just after 9pm on day 11. In total, it was 1,404 kilometres of cycling. The last 30 kilometres were interesting. By this point I was exhausted and pushing the bike up the hill, which I've nicknamed Purgatory as it was the last obstacle before hell. And having pushed it up in the dark, I got to the top and had 20 kilometres of descent in the dark, in the wet because it was now raining, on roads I didn't know. Doing 60 kilometres an hour downhill in those conditions is an interesting experience. But uh, yeah, it's been an interesting 11 days. I'm going to need some time to process it all. I've made it to hell. So next time someone says, go to hell, I can say, been there, done that. Two nights ago, I bivvied out under some trees. I don't even know where I was that night. But the sky cleared and it was a million stars that could be seen in the sky. Unfortunately... With the absence of the sky duvet, the temperature plummeted to minus four, at least. Possibly slightly lower. Which was a problem, as my sleeping bag is only rated to zero degrees. Even with a space blanket to boost it a little bit, I was cold. And then, when I got up in the morning... I had a 40 kilometre ride before breakfast. That was a tough day. Yeah, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, mostly it seemed to be paved with sharp pointy stuff that gave me punches. And at one point it was paved with a giant hole because they were doing roadworks and I hadn't noticed the road closed sign. But, yeah, 1,400 kilometres, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, hell. It's a tiny village, a station, a gas station, a couple of shops. As a destination, probably wouldn't recommend it. But as a journey, oh yes, the scenery was spectacular. 
absolutely amazing. So yeah, next time someone says, go to hell, maybe have a think about your next holiday plans. Dig out the bike. Find where you put your trail shoes. It's an interesting journey. Now all I have to do is work out how to get back. Thank you, Julia. It's been great to follow you on your journey throughout this issue, hearing about your highs and your lows, and in some ways the struggles you've shared in your diaries make your arrival in hell that much more satisfying. And on that note, this is also, we hope, a satisfying conclusion to issue three. We would like to say a huge thank you to everyone who wrote, recorded, appeared in and produced the pieces we've featured. Please do head to the website, queeroutheer.com, to learn a bit more about our contributors and their contributions. You'll find the full transcript linked in the show notes along with fantastic cover art by Dev. Finally, we'd like to thank you for finding, downloading and listening to Queer Art Here. We'd love to know what you thought of Issue 3. So find us on Twitter and Facebook, drop us an email or leave us a review, five stars it goes without saying, on your favourite podcast app. But most of all, if you've enjoyed the zine, please share it with other people who might be interested. Because that is why we make it. So until next time, from me, Alice, and me, Jonathan, goodbye. goodbye.